Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an opportunity for you to ask your questions on the Bible, God's Word, the Bible, if you have questions about Scripture, maybe a certain verse or passage that you'd like uh, explained in a bit deeper, or maybe even something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective. What does God say about different lifestyles, different choices that we make, uh, maybe even other religions or worldviews as it compares to Christianity, anything along those lines, as long as you know that uh, the Bible is where we find our answers. So as long as it's an honest question, we welcome all those questions. So we're very glad that you're joining us and giving us uh, the content for today. Uh, we're on multiple online platforms streaming live. I'll be going over those in just a moment. You can send in your questions through there. Or I'll be watching and waiting for those questions to come on in and I will shoot them out here to our guest today to uh, find the answers in God's Word again. So once again, send your questions in. We're very glad that you're joining us today. My name is Dave Robson. As I mentioned, I'll be on those platforms with you. With us today, it's just me and Sean Richards today. Pastor Sean, how you doing? You doing good? Good, yeah. Uh, normally, Pastor Bo would be joining us, but uh, for some reason, he's a parent. And uh, he, well, I guess <laughs> I know the reason why he's a parent, yeah. but his firstborn son, who is very close to me in age, is having his birthday today. So. Yeah priorities set yeah it's very good he's turning 29 which me and Bo are similar age but my kids are a lot younger he started earlier than me but a 29 year old child that means you're kind of getting up there in age a little bit I feel that now it'll be a uh, two more years and then Bo James and I will be complaining about things that you are well veteran <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that's right different aches and pains and those kind of things yes how do absolutely. you hurt yourself sleeping you can do it <laughs> it's true it's true and it comes to us all and it comes very quickly uh well yeah, people say did you sleep good last night and you go no I did make a few mistakes yes. that'll mean something it's very true this is very true well as I mentioned a reason for hope is a, a Bible Q&A session live. We are live with you. Uh, we stream uh, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we, it's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. If you keep that in mind while you're trying to find us, it will help you um, find us on those various platforms. Our website, in case you're someone that uh, is not really on social media, uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you go to that website, that's our church website here, go to that Watch Live tab. That will take you out to our live page uh, where you'll see a schedule of upcoming events um, and a countdown to our next show. Unless we are live, which we are right now, and you'll see the video playing live, you can sign in with a username. And there's a chat function that you can send your question direct to me on the show. And I'll throw it out here to Sean um, to answer it again with the use of the word. So ccftucson.online.church is the direct link for that live page. You can tape that uh, straight into your address bar, ccftucson.online.church, or follow the link again from calvarychristianfellowship.com uh, as well. It takes you to the same place. We're on Facebook as well, facebook.com. It's easy for you to say, facebook.com slash ccftucson, or look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson there on Facebook. Don't forget to like and share if you wouldn't mind. That would be great. Um, but again, put your question in the comments uh, attached to the live video and I will be checking those as well. We have an app as well. If you go to your app store, again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo as we are Calvary Chapel Church here. And you can watch us on your uh, mobile device and you can uh, send in your question that way as well. It looks very similar to the website. It's that same feed 
So um, send your questions in on the comments there as well. We have a, a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. If you want to add us as a channel, if you have those devices, you can watch us on your big screen. We're on YouTube as well. If you look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube, we're live there. Once again, send your questions in through that method. Uh, that live tab, if you go there, anytime we've been live, it, it uh, automatically archives there for you. So if you missed a show or you want to kind of recap a question that we that we covered, all that's available for you there on YouTube. Uh, again, if you wouldn't mind liking and subscribing and uh, clicking on that notification bell, all that good stuff on YouTube, we'd appreciate that. And uh, you can keep, uh, keep, up, keep up with us as we go live. Uh, our pastor, uh, Scott here, our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, he's on Twitter. If you'd like to follow along with him, Scott Arthur H. He po posts all kind of stuff, highlights from the show, like questions highlighted from the show. Um, commentary on world events. There's so much going on in the world and in the news as it relates to end times and prophecy, biblical prophecy and those kind of things. So um, it's very interesting to follow along uh, with him. So Scott Arthur H. on Twitter. You can follow along with Pastor Scott. That would be awesome as well. We're on Rumble as well. We're not live there, but we post videos. If you're on the Rumble platform, A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A, you will find us right there. And then we have an email address, of course, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope, all spelled out with letters at gmail.com. You can email us there anytime. If you're joining us on the radio, we're very glad that you're tuning in and listening. Drive safely if you're on your on your uh, drive time. Tucson's been a little bit crazy as far as roadworks and traffic and all that, so do be careful. And just keep in mind that you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you on the radio, so to speak. But you're welcome to send us your questions as well, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll get to that question on our next show. So wherever you are, however you're joining us, certainly glad that you have. Please send in your question, get them in early, and we would love to address all of those on our show today. Just like I say, me and Sean. So Sean's got his work cut out, but he does a fine job. <laughs> so, well, why don't we pause to pray as we like to do. Ask the Lord to guide us. Guide us in his word and that good stuff. Would you like to uh, pray today? Absolutely. I choose you. That'd be great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well. We know our hearts, and you know them even more, and we know that we have nothing to offer apart from you and what you freely give us. We're here to discuss your word. I pray that it would set out to honor you as you always intended to, and that it would be represented accurately. Protect those listening from error. Equip me to be able to give answers that are not only sound, but clear and understandable. And most of all, that you're blessed as a result of the time that's spent here, whether it's for those receiving your word or those relating it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Amen. That is Amen. true. Yes. All right, so starting off. Yeah, let's do it. Well, while I catch up with you guys uh, with your questions as you send them in, we have a uh, list of questions here from um, well, we got a uh, Martin. Got a question from Cruz already. He's, oh, we do. Oh, good. What platform was that on? Oh, it was on our uh, website here. Oh, cool. Let's see if and I... And another uh, one from Moore. Nice. I've been so busy welcoming everybody. I haven't yes. had a chance to look what's going on. Okay, cool. Well, question from Cruz. Thank you for joining us. Is it possible that the seven bowls, seven plagues, and seven trumpets overlap? Thanks. So maybe you could expand on that a bit more. Yeah. Um, Cruz is referring to. We're always transparent when it comes to answering questions about the end times, that there's more than one view on how the tribulation period is going to pan out and that that's allowed that this is not something that we would divide fellowship over, although, and this is just full honesty in court here, it is a good 
not necessarily red flag, but yellow flag to pay attention to how someone handles the Bible. Now, when we go, for instance, to the book of Proverbs and noting that it lays out that the plain understanding of Scripture and the main understanding of Scripture are both one and the same, that his words are plain to him who understands in the context of a parable where Solomon was describing wisdom, the word from God, uh, as an attractive woman, believe it or not. But how else are you going to get a teenager's attention when you're trying to impart <laughs> wisdom? Point being made, though, is this. Uh, we use that as a good starting point. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. So when we read Revelation and it mentions the seals, then the trumpets, then the bowls, we take that as a chronological sequence, and we'll go more a bit into detail on that in a second. But before I even go there, let me just clarify my word worldview and also give and grant respect to those brighter and older minds than mine that would take other perspectives and what the underlying assumptions are. Naturally, since they're not my view, I'm not owed to them to spend more time on their views than my own, but this is the point. They're fellow believers, and I need to make sure you all understand that. There's three general views that people take regarding prophecy, specifically things regarding the end times. One with an emphasis on the past, we call that a preterist view. The word just means fulfillment in a sense. There's a symbolic or sensationalist, it's also called an idealist view, that there is no literal fulfillment, that these are all just symbols and pictures that will be fulfilled in their own time, or rather uh, that have been fulfilled in the present, and that they play no place in time. This is a uh, one that I don't recommend. And then a futurist view, one that emphasizes these events have yet to take place in the future. The ones that were fulfilled during the ministry of Jesus obviously have been fulfilled. We'd agree with a preterist view on that, but that there are also room for dual fulfillments and multiple fulfillments in the future. For example, Jesus still speaking of um, John the Baptist being a fulfillment of Elijah, and yet at the same time after John the Baptist's execution saying Elijah was still to come. These are some of the proof texts for that. For a preterist, those who would put a special emphasis on these things having been fulfilled in the past, a lot of the handlings of Scripture make Matthew 24 and the chronology put there as a higher priority than any other handling of Scripture. Uh, likewise, a symbolic or a uh, idealist view of Scripture would use basically just the working assumption of what's called in the internet circles pan-trib. It'll all pan out in the end. They want to avoid controversy, so they'll distance themselves from any direct handling of the passage. And then, of course, a futurist view puts the book of Revelation itself as the outline for itself. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus speaking to the Apostle John notes that he was to show him the things that were, past tense, the things that are, future tense, or present tense, and the things that will take place after this, future tense. So with the events that were told, and this is the, the view that I come to it from, we are told in Revelation chapter 6 that the seals are opened 1 to 6. We're given a pause, like many books of prophecy in the Old Testament would do, and then told how the gospel is being shared during that time period in chapter 7. Chapter 8 then begins with the seventh seal that introduces the seven trumpets. Then the, seven, the six trumpets continue in Revelation 8 through 9. Revelation 11 pauses somewhat 
in describing the two witnesses, how the chapter seven events got started, and then of course culminating with the seventh trumpet, a pause to note this very significant fulfillment of prophecy in the abomination of desolation. In chapter 12, we're told how Satan was bound to this earth and being cast out of heaven officially. 13 is noting his activities through the false prophet and the Antichrist, capital A, Antichrist, by the way. And then 14 and 15 note how the gospel is going to be shared throughout the remainder of the tribulation now that it's going to be a capital crime to exist and not worship the image of the beast. Mm. Then chapter 16 notes the bulls in sequential order. Now, the biggest challenge I would present to someone who says, well, because, you know, this involves an earthquake and this plague also involves an earthquake and this plague also involves an earthquake, how do you know that these aren't just, you know, all talking about the same thing or just some broad thing? This would usually be heard from in the idealist or symbolic crowd. And my challenge to that would be, in the most direct sense, the beginning of Revelation chapter 8 that along with what I just overviewed, the chapter begins with an event following and literally begins with the words, after these things, what things, the things that were just mentioned before it, then you have an event, a specific event, a seventh seal that introduces seven trumpets. Now, why would I associate the seven trumpets with something that just happened and are about to happen? Mm. Now, in the defense, of people who would take this approach. He's saying, well, we're talking about heaven here. Time may work differently. Uh, Solomon described it in Ecclesiastes as that which was, now is, and that which hasn't been already has. It, it's it's going to be a, you know, a, a mind melt, if you want to use the yeah. modern term. And that, I think, is, again, reading too much into the text when something's trying to be revealed to us. Mm -hmm. Literally, the book of Revelation, this is right. being laid out. And so in the same way, and for the same reason that, for instance, I would handle the Exodus and the plagues therein mm. as sequential, this, then this, then this, yep. then this, I also handle Revelation the same way. If I am told about events in a broad overview, then I do allow for ambiguity. Matthew uh, 24 is an excellent example of that. He's talking about subjects and then moving on to another subject and moving on to another subject. Those who have a preterist view would take that as sequential. Note, it's not as if we're reading two different Bibles. We're just noting the application in a slightly different, not even way, but angle. And it does lead to different conclusions. But here, here's the point, Cruz. Revelation 8, verses 1 through 3 really sell the ticket for me that we're talking about a sequence of events, especially given that, and there are other examples, noting the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, and then 14 notes the introduction, or excuse me, 15 notes the introduction of the seals, or the bowls, excuse me, in which the wrath of God is complete, literally brought to fruition. We see an increase in intensity of the plagues, that the seals aren't as severe, definitely in scope, but definitely not in depth as the trumpet judgments and likewise for the bowl judgments. These are the things, and this is from the worldview that I'm approaching the text and saying, I don't think there's an overlap here. I think there's a reason why chapter 4 was told before 5, 6, 7, 8, in that order. Now, if you're going to be nitpicky, I know the chapters and verses were introduced later, but I do believe there was an intention of John writing the sequence that he did, 8 and verse 1 through 3 are definitely the most straightforward challenge to the idea of them being overlapping. Hmm. Great. 
Thank you for, for laying that out. That was from a question from Cruz. Thank you for that. Hope that helps you out, guides you along there. Uh, I've got some great questions coming in. Thank you, everyone. Um, again, you're welcome to send your questions in on whatever platform you join us on today. Question from Moore. Um, it just says my login has expired, so please don't shut. There you go. From Moore. In Matthew, <laughs> it says I will gather. Nope, it logged me out. Uh, I will gather my elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Could this mean that there will be elect throughout the vastness of space if the Lord tarries? Thanks. Uh, much like the previous question. I said question. that without moving my lips. That was clever, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah perfect impression of me. <laughs> yeah. Or my father, depending on who you're asking. <laughs> you but just that's close another. your eyes. It could be either. Um, yeah, no. Um, gather my elect from the four winds. You have to read a lot into the term four winds that wouldn't have been understood the way that, or to the audience, that Jesus was addressing them. I know he has the right to speak in ways that are a little bit above his uh, audience's pay grade. But once again, the best way to handle the text is the way that the immediate audience would have handled it. And we see other places where the four winds are gathered, and that's referring exclusively to this earth. In Revelation chapter 7, for instance, there was an angel standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back those winds and about to drop judgment on the earth. And an angel then told them, don't harm the earth, the sea the plants or trees or any green thing until we have sealed those who are who belong to God on their foreheads. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the biggest challenge, this very earth-centric view of the events of God's dealings with mankind. Now I know we like to be idealistic and say, oh, the final frontier and who knows what could happen in the future. I know what will happen in the future. People will continue to be greedy. People will continue to fall for schemes and, you know, every single government plot to vie for more power and the money that could potentially be used for space exploration will ultimately be laundered to line their own pockets. It's just the way that things are. Now, the possibility, obviously anything's possible, but the audience that would have understood Jesus' words was probably the way he meant it to be understood. The four winds, the four corners, quote-unquote, referring to north, south, east, and west, so the globe. And since it's used elsewhere in Scripture, a la Revelation 7 and others in the Old Testament as well, but that's the one that comes closest to mind for me at the moment, that's how I believe it ought to be handled, especially mm -hmm. since Revelation's noting a more future fulfillment of those things and doesn't end, mention anything more than this earth. Right. So take that what you will. Sorry if uh, you're uh, disappointed in uh, <laughs> ideals of being the uh, first man or woman on Venus without uh, disintegrating, but I don't think that's happening. <laughs> as far as uh, the significance of that, I think all that Jesus meant was the elect from every nation, those on the earth. Gotcha. Very disappointing, but the truth will set you free. So thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you more for your question. Hope that helps you out. Um, I have a question from Matt. What is the firmament of heaven exactly in Genesis 1? talks about the firmament of heaven. What exactly is that? Um, shortest answer I could give is just the atmosphere. Hmm. <laughs> yep. not, not really much else I can say. Okay. It's, um, I mean, I, I guess when God created the heavens and the earth and what exactly kind of separated that? How do you define those things in Genesis? I mean, is Well, we can uh, go to Bible Hub and get into the Greek and Hebrew if you'd like, but yeah. that's just... Because we, we can have misconceptions about 
heaven i think we had a good discussion the other day about that what heaven is is that where god is on his throne mm-hmm. is the heavens because the bible also talks about the heavens being just the you know the, the what we see the sky and the and the stars and all that kind of stuff so i mean did god create a dwelling for himself in genesis or do we know well not in that sense um the way it's used depends largely on the context which is true mm-hmm. in any language and communication for example in the psalms it mentions that the firmament shows his handiwork right and that's in reference to the stars so it can refer to things beyond the atmosphere mm-hmm. but if the question is going to expand so to speak into the three heavens um, it's not referring to three separate like layers of paradise like some bizarre mormon fever dream it's the idea that there are three terms that would describe heaven mm-hmm. one of which would be the firmament in the sense of the atmosphere where the birds of heaven are flying it's not as if there's like space birds like rebels where they can hyperspace travel or something to take the blue scary guy away it's the idea let me know if you understood that reference uh (laughs) if on the other hand you're going to note its usage the three main places you're going to find it again genesis 1 it notes god created the heavens plural and the earth not that there's multiple dwelling places of god but that there's multiple terms to use to describe the sky the look up and what you're seeing ish ideas where the stars are the universe the known universe the galaxies all that kind of stuff so that would be the second heaven in a sense on top of the atmosphere the heavens showing their handiwork that would also be appropriately understood the firmament showing his glory also in reference to the stars Mm. i can't think off the top of my head of the word firmament being used to describe god's direct dwelling place where he would um most personally manifest his glory but apart from the known universe we would make a point of emphasis that god's separation from his creation isn't total the holy spirit if he were to withdraw himself job said all life would turn to dust so there's a sense in which god's a part of the universe but i don't advocate for this fancy terms it means panentheism that god is the universe and beyond it mm. I, I do recognize there's a distinction between the artist and the artwork right but his occupying of this universe is to maintain it and that one day according to second peter 3 he will one day let it go mm. it doesn't remove part of himself but note that point um when we're talking about the third heaven though and that's where the term third heaven comes from paul's point in second corinthians where uh, some believe it was when he was stoned outside of that Greek city where they responded mm. to him about as well as you'd imagine. Uh, he was given a vision of paradise and saw things that it wouldn't be lawful for a man to speak. And I mm. believe in Second Corinthians either 11 or 12, I'll check that in a moment, he makes that point and uses that term, the third heaven. And it would either be Joseph Smith's version of the telestial level of glory, mm. which is absurd, or it's the idea of this third term, usage of heaven, where God directly manifests his glory. The context would then fit because he's describing things that are indescribable. I mean, you know, if we're talking about the known universe, it would be probably difficult for a guy like Paul to describe a nebula or supernova, but it wouldn't fit the conversation he was having with people Mm -hmm. since he was describing revelation from God. And you know, people can look at the stars and see a lot of amazing and beautiful things. He could have just used that term, aster, right? Mm. Bodies of light that were beyond comprehension or vastness. Mm. But if, on the other hand, we're going to note it was in relation to the conversation he was having about 
what he's been shown from Jesus and that the boasting that he was able to appropriately commit himself to, having been given abundance of revelation and God humbling him as a result of it as well, he said, I couldn't put what I saw into words. Now, I could put, if I were shown a you know, videotape of a black hole or a quasar or those sort of things, I could put that into words. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a, a hole that was black. <laughs> <laughs> a quasar is just light everywhere and colors and spectrums and things. Yeah. What Paul was describing was something that couldn't be put into language that he said would literally be unlawful to put into language. Mm. It was beyond anything in this universe because it was the one beyond it. And yeah. that's the point. Yeah. When we describe heaven, we're emphasizing that. It's where Jesus is, yeah. where we'll be with him. And knowing that when heaven comes to earth, it's not as if the you know, new heavens and the new earth will be recreated, mind you, but the point is what? Jesus will be there. Right. The temple of the Lord God won't be there. Why? Because the Lamb is its temple, mm. and the Lord God will be its light. So that's what we mean by heaven depending on the context, the atmosphere, the known universe, or where God directly manifests his glory. In regards to the question, just to make sure we're not missing the point, the firmament in Genesis 1, in the sense of creation, he separated the firmament, that was referring to the atmosphere. Mm. I think that fits the context quite well. If you have alternative explanations, make sure you can back it up in the Hebrew, but since we have access to it, and I can look it up right here and right now, the point of emphasis, I think, is the plain one and the simple one. So we're noting those separations from the land and the sea. Not talking about deep space there. That's what sets it up for us. Um, The vault in verse 6 of Genesis 1, to separate the earth from the water, as some would translate it. Let me uh, get the Hebrew here to note that word that's usually translated as firmament. It is rakiah. And the usage of it, notice this isn't difficult. I can do this while uh, talking, uh, <laughs> the expanse, all those things that are s- translated. This is in Strong's Hebrews Concordance, rakia. It's a noun masculine. Uh, rakia is its pronunciation, so I've got it, that right. And its definition is an extended surface or an expanse. So hmm. not necessarily conclusive on that, but it is making a point of its usage in the NASB, which is a word-for-word translation. They tried to stick to the Hebrew, and one of its uses was the expanse of heaven. Sixteen uses were just of a expanse. (laughs) So what are you going to do? You're going to go off of what's being talked about rather than just the word that's used. Is that the place where God's throne is? Is that what was created? No. Are we talking about, you know, this uh, idea of the you know, the cosmos, or is this the multiverse or something? No, the Hebrew word's just a big, <laughs> a big, that's, that's the most you can take. Yeah, so. yeah. Very good. Well, thank you. And like you said, con- context, 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 context. It's always very important. Yeah, read um, six through seven things. just talks about the difference between land and water. We have a word for that too. Yeah, very good. Great, well, Matt, uh, it was Matt, yes. Thank you for your question. Hope that helps you out with that. Thanks for being part of the show today. Uh, question from is it high, high up? We're gonna we're gonna go with that. Is uh, uh, Leviathan an evil spirit, an extinct dinosaur-like creature, a uh, cryptid like uh, Loch Ness, or an unknown creature? Leviathan that the Bible talks about. Do we know what kind of creature that it was? Uh, not zoologically, if that's the word. No, it's a good but. Word. Um, modern comparisons would probably associate with some type of dinosaur. Uh, Let me get the passages so that we can just 
go through them together. Um, there was some interesting studies that I was going through regarding the nature of Leviathan and how not just the biblical text, but how traditional Judaism and even Kabbalic mystic Judaism were using Leviathan in association with the foundation of everything evil and that the first meal of paradise would be feasting on Leviathan's corpse and then they would then extrapolate that summary of a symbolizing of a passage in the Bible. Notice we're already three tiers removed from Scripture at this point to describe that there will be no more pain, suffering. It is a sound biblical conclusion, but not a literal term. Uh, the reason why I was reading that in the first place was because um, in Islam, the founder of it, Muhammad, uh, was asked by a Jewish guy, what will be the first meal of paradise? And he said, fish guts. That was based on that Jewish tradition, most mm. likely, because one of Muhammad's nicknames was the ear. He just believed everything he heard. He didn't mm. understand Job, let alone anything else. But um, Job 41 the one where it most prominently appears. So let me note the conversation. Mm -hmm. God speaking. First big hint. Secondly, the genre of this is the context of poetry. It's an emphasis on human perspective mm -hmm. rather than historical events, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this didn't happen. Um, he's giving Job a series of questions. He's kind of taking the Columbo tactic, asking him things that don't necessarily require an answer, but in giving a truthful answer, he put himself into a corner. Job has suffered, if you just want to know the crux of the book. And then the next 40 chapters or so are just them philosophizing about the implications of that. And when God finally steps in at the end of the book, the questions he asks are quite telling because they all follow a certain theme. I'll give you that when we read through this section. Uh, Job 41 and verse 1. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? That's the idea that it's probably a sea creature. Or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? the idea of domesticating animals. Uh, will, it be, will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put a leash for the young woman in your house? It'd be an interesting pet. Will traders bar, uh, barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. So it's a very dangerous creature. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Remember who's talking, right? The Leviathan creature is speaking personified. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of, Le of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Wow. So it's got some, uh, got some skin there. Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the ray of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay 
goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. It goes on, but it's just a character then. Huh? Oh, definitely a toughie, but yeah. the idea is that it's not the sort of thing that you're going to hunt for fun. <laughs> you're taking not only your life, but an army's life into your hands and trying to engage this thing. Yeah. Now, what do we know about it? Well, what's told plainly could be associated with certain things like an Inkiosaurus or those sort of deals, but when we're talking about a point-for-point point comparison, A, this wouldn't be mythological per se, because it's in the context of poetry. God could be, and these are the three general views, making a illustration of the most fearsome monster imaginable and saying, if you could picture something in creation and couldn't handle it, I could. And that's the takeaway. Yeah. The second is that this is an actual sea creature, and just like 90% of everything else in the ocean, we don't know what else is down there. Yeah. It's not an argument I'd make, but it is a sound point in saying you can't argue against it on that basis either. The third view is that, of course, with the Kabbalic mysticism and stuff, it's just describing everything that's wrong with this world personified in this in what, what's the... the you're the English expert here. You're from the country. Indefatigable <laughs> is the word. Uh, you, you can't tire it, let alone defeat it, yeah, right? Never heard that word, so sure, we'll go with it. Yeah, the idea, though, is just that you're seeing something that's scary. And God's putting Job in perspective with a series of questions. He also mentions behemoth, which we would more associate with a brontosaurus or a patasaurus. Um, animals that would be either A, long extinct, or just haven't been discovered because... You ask actual uh, zoologists and say, you know, what uh, what's going on inside the deep forests of the Congo? And they go, we can't touch that, let alone figure out what's going on in there. The point being made, though, is this. We're talking about a very impressive creature, a very poetically hyped-up creature, and one that's been used in a variety of ways throughout ancient literature, biblical or not. But the point being made is just that. Um, you're saying, oh, it's impossible to have fire-breathing creatures. Two words, bombardier beetle. If animals today that can produce that same kind of phenomenon entirely from biology. If you're saying, oh, there's no such thing as an animal with skin so tough that it, uh, you, know, you can't pierce it with a spear, I don't even have to acknowledge that. <laughs> there are elephant hides that are tough enough. There are scales that if we're on something that big, I think we could take the point. Yep. If we could imagine these sort of things, I think the ancient world could too. And that's where I think there's uh, credit to it just being this imaginative figure. But the mm. point being made is that. Mm. Uh, and I, I have to repent in sackcloth and ashes. I was reading the New International Version. Um, they had the automated one set up. I prefer <laughs> not that. But the point being made is... I think, to the point. When God is making this point about Leviathan, the intention isn't for us to go on a quest to find Leviathan in the depths of the uh, Caspian Sea or Mediterranean or whatever. The point of emphasis is, this is a big, bad creature, yeah. but it's in creation. You can't handle it, but I can. Do you think I can handle your circumstances? Mm. And that was the point that he makes with Leviathan, with Behemoth, and with a lot of other things, even the nature of creation itself. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right. When I, you know, y you get the idea. So Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, thank you for that question. I hope that helps you out with that, and that was a good takeaway from it as well. Uh, see, question from Renee. Welcome to the show. Thank you for sending your question in. This is something on more... Of a personal level, I guess I've been looking for a job, applying since I moved to Tucson. I worked all my life, but since moving here, nothing. 
seeking God and I want to work, what encouragement and scripture can you offer? Thank you. Thank you, Renee, for that question. Well, you have the right heart about it. Um, Paul made a point repeatedly that he who doesn't provide for the needs of his own family is denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. He made a point about uh, Christians that were getting complacent and entitled that if they don't work, they won't eat. So if you have the sort of mindset that wants to seek work and you're bringing that before God in prayer, then I don't think he's going to dismiss you. The idea, I think, would be to make use of resources, most specifically and directly, maybe your home fellowship. Obviously, we're here to encourage and build up one another in love and good works, but we're employed here too. And if there are want ads, we're Dave, you can attest to this. We're uh, not quiet about it. If someone's looking for work, why not start in the church with people who share your fundamental worldview? Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully they won't take that for granted and then say, oh, we're brothers in the faith, and so I can loaf around on the job and stuff. No, if you call yourself a Christian and don't represent Christ in the job, stop telling people you're a Christian. But the point, I think, is sound there as well, Renee. Yeah, don't don't neglect the church, the connection and communities you may have there. Let people know that you're looking for a job, and I'm sure that you're going to not only find help, but a lot faster than you think you would. Secondly, like James made the observation, you have not because you ask not. If you have the attitude and heart willing to work, and it's in alignment with God's will, which it is, then I think that that's something that you can expect a positive answer for. The idea is to be willing to respond when those opportunities arise, not just say, well, I'm above that kind of work. I want, a, I want a job that I enjoy. You're looking for work, you find work. But when it comes to um, any other words of encouragement, we'd be happy to pray for you first and foremost if you're comfortable with that, maybe later on in the program if we have permission. But those are just the two places I'd start. Prayer, according to the will of God, you have scripture behind you noting this is the kind of attitude and intent that God supports. And secondly, understand that you're surrounded by like-minded people who love you and are able to build you up in your relationship with God, including providing for your needs and for the needs of your family called your local church. Don't neglect that resource either. Apart from that, I don't think I can think of much else. Mm. No, very good. I'm sure that helps. Renee out a lot. Thank you for that. Um, And we certainly will, with your permission, pray for you maybe later on the show today. Uh, question here from, say a question from Martin. Uh, oh Micah 5.2, how do you support the claim that it is uh, messianic? Micah 5.2. Well, uh, I know who asked it, so I'd be wrong if I said that, uh, good question, I did translate it a little bit, but that is a good topic. Um, when it comes to Micah 5.2 or any other Old Testament prophecy, For those of you who don't know the cause of the animus in the audience, uh, this is coming from an atheist who didn't actually ask this question. They made the accusation that this is just a vague prophecy that didn't actually mean anything. Well, let's go to the passage and note why it would be not only appropriately considered by the Jews who wrote it, but still by us today, Matthew included, when he referenced it in chapter 2 of his Gospel account to make the point that this is in fact referring to the Messiah or the Anointed One. Uh, First, and I think most directly, when we're reading the passage, and let me get it up here, uh, Micah 5.2 has an interesting flow as far as not only the conversations that Micah's having with 
the people of Israel in the 8th century BC, but also what he brings up about this character is only appropriately applied to God. And then we'll note that God being among his people is an identification of the Messiah in a moment. But let me just start in verse 1, Micah chapter 5. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth, his activities, are from old, from everlasting. So Micah, in starting this prophecy, the immediate historical context was noting that foreign powers are going to continue to dominate the Jewish lands. But in the midst of the entire Jewish territory, the smallest of its cities are going to produce a ruler who's going to rule all nations. So notice the contrast in inverse, the backfire of power, if you will, that even though Israel is going to be least among all the nations, what's going to come out of her will rule all nations. Though Bethlehem is the least of the least of all nations, that's where this Messiah is going to come from. Now, without inferring too much, let me just read the point. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, Bethlehem, for those of you who aren't familiar, it specifies which one because there were multiple cities called House of Bread. That's what Bethlehem means. But just like Israel's greatest king, David, and we'll just note that for ceremonial purposes, there were others who had more wealth like Solomon, more military success like Uzziah and others. But the point being made is this, that significant figure was given a promise by God in 2 Samuel chapter 11 or uh, 9, excuse me, where he was told after offering to build God a temple, it's like God's living in a tent, he's manifesting his glory as something that goes back to the time of Moses. I mean, it's significant for history, but how can I live in this big house while God's living in a tent? I want to build God a house. And God, being who he is, was touched by that, but said and told David this through the prophet Nathan, you're a man of blood. Your, your hands have not only shed blood, but it wasn't always pretty. It would be too ironic for you to build my house. So here's what I'm going to do instead, because I love you, because you're a man after my own heart, because you long for the relationship with me like I long for with all of my people. That's what that means, and that's what is specified at the beginning of 1 Kings. He says, I'm going to build you a house. One's going to come from your seed who will always rule from Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. And that noting the fact that the Messiah would come from the Davidic line is one that every single Orthodox, Messianic, or nominal Hebrew would acknowledge even today going back to Second Temple and First Temple Judaism. But we call that First Temple Judaism the Bible. So with that said, um, in Second Samuel's account and noting Bethlehem would be not only where this Messiah would come from later on, but in association with David, David also came from, if you remember in 1 Samuel, Bethlehem. So all of this being fresh in the minds of the average Jewish citizen, Micah makes a description of this city not being big enough to be counted for military censuses, but noting that they are little among the territories that the tribe of Judah controlled, one of you out of you, rather, shall come forth to me, one to be ruler in Israel. Now, there have been plenty of kings, 
plenty of rulers in Israel. It's a vague term. isn't necessarily denoting that this is God. Mm. We don't think that the kings of Israel were God anymore, right? And there were ugly kings in Israel. Manasseh was a ruler in Judah. We don't call him the Messiah. But it notes, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, you can go into the original language, but it's using the same terms that are used to describe God exclusively. For example, in Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2, where it notes, before anything was created, you are God. That ongoing reality, that fact that God doesn't begin and he won't end, that these the sort of entity that is beyond time. It describes this one who would be born from Bethlehem as being the only thing in existence that already existed before he was born. That's why he used the term going forth. One will come out to me. So if we're given this exclusive trait from an about God, that he's eternal, that he's always existed, we either have two eternal things, which is impossible, or we have deity, the sort of thing that only God can be, coming out of this little insignificant city mm. and thus following the flow of Israel being the least of all nations, ruling all nations, Bethlehem Ephrathah being the least of all cities, he will produce Judah's ruler forever. Right. The one promised to David who also was born in Bethlehem. Yeah. And these were the sort of things that the audience would want to keep in mind. Now, obviously, I as a Christian could just stand on my laurels and say, well, it's quoted in the New Testament. That's good enough for me. But if you, I'm speaking to a non-Messianic, uh, meaning they don't believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, uh, the Messiah, then they're not going to buy that. So you yeah. want to stick to the Old Testament. And that's something I prefer to do among Christians as well. Mm. But if we can understand that these terms are exclusively being applied to God, Psalm 90 and verse 2 describes God alone as everlasting, that this one who's going to physically come out of the least of all these cities, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, like Jesus of Nazareth did, hint, hint, we can note this guy wasn't he was physically born, but he didn't begin to exist there. Mm -hmm. He's always existed. He right. entered creation, a la Philippians 2 and others. But again, I want to make sure I'm sticking to the Old Testament. This is the reason why we would conclude that as messianic, because whoever this figure is, he's sharing exclusive traits with God that only belong to God. Mm -hmm. There's no other eternal thing, right. yet this eternal thing is being distinct from God, yet one with God. This is why we believe in what's called a trinity. Now, if you have more questions on that, feel free to ask, but the point of emphasis in Micah 5.2 being messianic is intentional because it gives to a physical human ruler mm. traits that only apply to God. Then right. whatever's coming out of there either has to be God or Micah's line. You can take the latter conclusion, but that's not rational when you're taking a text at face value. Yeah. What is it trying to communicate? Well, that's what's being communicated. You can decide the rationale of that later. But the point of emphasis is the Hebrews themselves that wrote it would have understood what that meant. Psalm 92, only God's everlasting. Right. He has those exclusive traits. This guy comes from everlasting. So what does that mean? This guy's either God or he's, well, that's not, not much else we can do. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, oh, it's false. A liar. So that's the point is the eternal nature of this physical ruler in the flow of a prophecy speaking of a future ruler to come from a specific geographical location is one of hundreds 
of prophecies relevant to the Messiah that were recognized by those that wrote it. If you want to look more into this, again, I'd encourage you to look at their actual writings, not Reddit posts. But that would be how we'd handle the text and how those before us in Judaism are handling the text as well. The only difference for non-Messianic Jews is that they don't believe Jesus fulfilled either them at all or all of them. They would say that the accounts of Jesus' birth were just hearsay, which I disagree with. You're allowed to as well. But given the other historical data we were given, I think it's rational to conclude this was setting something up. And again, if you want the time frame, Micah was writing around the same time as Isaiah, who went into a lot more detail about the nature of the Messiah than any other Old Testament book, and that's saying something. Yeah, that's right. Well, great. Thank you for laying that out. That's uh, very helpful. Thank you for that question. Um, we have a couple of questions, somewhat related. We can lump them together. One's about hell and one's about heaven. Uh, will hell be a place of torture that Christians will watch from heaven and even, it was implied, that we enjoy? Um, and also, is the Bible specific about what happens to us in heaven? So hell and heaven, is hell the place of torture? Will we see that from heaven? And then do we know what actually goes on in heaven? What descriptions do we have? Yeah, um, same source, unpleasantly phrased, but we'll still address it because it is probably going to be relevant to those of you who are listening. Uh, when we're talking about the passage that would even somehow justify, and again, I'm not being coarse here, these were his words, describing heaven as a free theater for torture porn. Classy. Um, the only way they would come to that conclusion is missing the entire point of Revelation 14, where it describes the torment interesting change of consonants there mm. of those who are experiencing the wrath of god are in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb that's in revelation chapter 14 and verse 10 but once again it goes on to intentionally use the word torment in verse 11 it ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and ever received the mark of his name so in order to conclude that passage as describing heaven as this theater where we're watching those awful atheists and pagans get theirs, you first of all have to shoehorn in us into that midst where it only mentions the Lamb and his angels. Secondly, you have to also shoehorn in, notice there's a lot of shoehorning going on here, the intention, the pleasure of seeing these people in a state of torment as a result of them being in that state. Mm. They would enjoy it, which is not told to us in the text. It's inferred by people who don't like the what the text has to say about them. The fourth thing that you have to infer, or the third thing, excuse me, I have four things, but the third thing you have to infer, not just that we're there, despite us not being mentioned. Secondly, that they're enjoying it, which isn't mentioned. The third thing, and the other interesting aspect of this, is you have to twist the word. Torment and torture to be synonyms, which isn't always the case. Both involve pain, mm -hmm. discomfort, displeasure, but the reference point is the reason why we have two different words in English. And you can get into the original languages. I won't because I don't know. But the point of emphasis is there's a reason they translate torment as such because it's internal anguish. You're the problem. Mm. As opposed to torture where it's external forms of anguish. Someone else is inflicting that on you. Being in the presence 
of this. And again, Martin, as an atheist, would understand this completely. He quoted Christopher Hitchens twice in the rant that produced a lot of these questions. He descri- uh, Christopher Hitchens, for those of you who don't know, he's a public speaker and an article editor, recently passed away, so he believes now. But he right. would make the point about heaven and saying, I hate the God of the Bible. I despise him, anything to do with him. For me to go to heaven would be hell. Right. Which ironically, is a lot sounder theology than you'd give him credit for, because Mm. he accidentally made a valid point. When we're describing the state that we know as hell, yes, it is given descriptions of outer darkness. It's compared to the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, known as the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, and it's also described as a lake of fire in Revelation. All of those things are pretty good pictures of just the sort of place you wouldn't like to build a summer home at. Mm. Take that for what you will. Now, if we're going to go over that plainly, what else do we know doctrinally about the state of heaven? First of all, that God has literally seen the state that we were all in. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 notes that we who were dead in our trespasses and sin were made alive as a result of God being gracious towards us. We were by nature children of wrath. We were headed to hell in a handbasket, to use the modern term. And God literally said, over my dead and resurrected body. Now, I don't know about the kind of investments you've made, Martin, in the lives of people that you care about, but to lay down your life for someone that you care about, I think, I won't speak presumptuously, but that you would even find admirable. And the point being made is just that. If God was so invested in preventing us from going there, and you prevent this caricature of my God as enjoying the fact that you were there when he literally endured it so that you wouldn't have to, I'm getting a lot of disrespectful, if not deceptive, vibes from you. Which is what brings us to the fourth point. When we're talking about the place of torture, which despite the fact the words never used to describe it, that Christians will watch from heaven despite Christians never being mentioned as watching it, the only time that we have any reference to witnesses being aware of anything beyond the presence of Jesus in heaven is in Hebrews 12 and verse 1, which is in reference to the previous chapter, noting the reference of their lives lived, not necessarily of them being aware of us. You have to infer so much. That's the point. You have to assume You have to infer. You have to attribute motive. You have to commit fallacy upon fallacy, misrepresentation upon misrepresentation, dishonor me, dishonor my God, reject everything he's shown you about his character, and assume your twisted hatred of him to also be shared towards you. But guess what? He doesn't hate you like you hate him. He loves you, and he proved it in history. If you want to hear more about him, then great. But based off of these statements, I would rather just leave you to deal with the Holy Spirit because I don't want to waste time with a hardened heart. But then that being said, how about the good stuff? How about heaven? What does it tell us specifically about what happens to us in heaven? Well, um, ironically, despite most of the world religions going out of their way to motivate people with carnal desires, like in the Quran where it mentions <laughs> probably kids listening, but basically a brothel, for lack of a better term, where rivers of wine, women who are constantly virginal and so forth, and only existing basically as puppets for that use. 
that would motivate a very certain kind of person. Hopefully not the kind of person you want entirely to make up your religion. The Bible doesn't go into details as far as the pleasures that await, only that they're there. Hmm. The only thing that we're told about the state of heaven, apart from the new creation, which is different, is the fact that it's where Jesus is. And we constantly drive home that point. When we're talking to people about heaven, you're with Jesus. Heaven isn't necessarily a place, it's with a person. And you can be in horrible environments, but shared with the person who loves you and that you love most, you can find a way to make it fun. (laughs) But noting God's capacity to be infinitely creative, infinitely beautiful, infinitely artistic, and infinitely able to occupy us, got a feeling that it won't be boring. But the point of emphasis needs to be just that. It's not that we want God's goodies. It's that we want Him and everything good that naturally comes from Him, James's epistle said. That is what we know specifically about what happens to us in heaven, that we're with Jesus. And quite frankly, that's good enough for me. Um, We have any other questions before we continue with Martin's last one? Uh, Not that I've seen come in. Um, Edward had a question about the firmament. There's nothing firm about the atmosphere. That's an English term translated from it. Just look up the term expanse. That's the word it's translated from. So it's Um, nothing to do with being firm. Yeah, it's right. uh, old Englishy, so blame him. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking about <laughs> I'm other old English here, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, we're uh, just about up on the end here, so I think we can call it that for today. If we yeah, missed absolutely. any your questions, but and Sean will be back with us tomorrow, and I believe Pastor Scott's back in back in town. That's the rumor. Yeah, that's the rumor, and he'll be joining us as well. So thank you for being part of Reason for Hope. We'll be back here same time, same places tomorrow tomorrow's wednesday and we'll be uh, also streaming our service after the show as well so thank you for being part of the show we'll see you again tomorrow god bless you guys you've been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com you can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.